Thanks for tuning in to Kineticast. I'm your host, Bo Sauls. Today we have Dr. Ryan Camo, who is back on to continue the talk on concussion and balance assessment. Dr. Camo talks about how he handles concussions in his clinic and the different ways he uses the Kinetison's 3D balance feature to get reimbursed by insurance, assess athletes, and the geriatric population. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to Kineticast on your podcast app so you can stay up to date with the new episodes. Let's not waste any more time and start Episode 5, Three-Dimensional Balance and Concussion Assessment with Dr. Ryan Camo. Thank you for tuning in to Kineticast. I'm your host, Bo Sauls. Today we have Dr. Ryan Camo back to continue the talk about concussion and balance assessment. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So let's go ahead and get started. I know last time we had you on, we got into a little bit about the balance and how we can use it to assess concussion. I would like to know how you use the Kineticense to assess balance and concussion in your clinic. Yeah, you know, it's it's been an incredible tool for us, really. Uh, it's it's uh, The concussion baselining has, has really added a whole new element, you know, to our clinic um, and uh, has really allowed our, our clinic to expand and its presence and, and to get out in the community. Um, we what we've done is we've gone out to a lot of the the sports organizations uh so so the hockey associations dance associations soccer uh basketball volleyball and what we do is we go to the boards and and um, when they have their board meetings we showcase the the abilities of the kineticense system right so we were able to show them how we're able to pick up the three-dimensional sway of their athletes yeah. and be able to go through the best test, right? The BESS test, which is which is a test that's done for concussion analysis in in, in all the major sports in, in the NFL, NBA, you know, MLB, NHL, and um, up till now, it's it's really been a visual assessment. And and what I mean by that is is practitioners, uh, you know, athletic trainers would simply just watch and eyeball the athlete and see how they sway. And try to use that as a baseline. Yeah, and right? I, it's really incredibly subjective. Yeah, and it looks like I I looked up in best a little bit too, and it shows that they kind of watch for twenty seconds. But if the person doesn't make it past five seconds, they quit the test. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And and really, when you're assessing balance, you want to have about a twenty second balance assessment, yeah. and you want to want to make sure that you're you're assessing all the different areas of uh, of sway of the different regions of the body. And um, so there, there are so many dysfunctions that we can see in balance, right? We can see someone that, uh, you know, removes their hand from their waist or, or drops the foot or, uh, you know, starts to shuffle their foot left to right or, or A to P. Right. And, um, and really with the visual assessment of best, there's, there's no way to quantify that. Uh, our system is is able to to score balance from a zero to 100 scale and actually breaks down what the sway is at the different parts of the body, right? What is the sway at the head? What is the sway score at the shoulders, the hips, the knee, the ankle? Yeah. And uh, it really gives us a, a, a data-driven analysis that when an athlete does get concussed or there's a, there's a you know, potentially a suspected concussion, we're able to use the system to reanalyze and be able to gauge how far away from their baseline they were and use that as a marker throughout the course of their treatment protocol to know when it's safe to be able to return that player to play. And um, 
you know, one of the, the one of the big things with concussion is is uh, CTE, right? It's right. The, the chronic traumatic and stuff up the, and we're finding that it a lot of these athletes that that were not diagnosed properly with concussion that continued to play while they were concussed, and you know, and, and sustained a second or third impact, uh, kind of a concussion building on a concussion, so to speak. Yeah. That these individuals are at high risk of getting plaquing in their brains later on in life. Yeah. So being able to have an objective measure to know when it's safe for that player to return to play when their brain has healed is huge. It is, it is absolutely huge. And uh, it's probably one of the most valuable components of, of concussion analysis and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, assessment and, and also treatment, right? Yeah. Or management. Sure. I mean, you think the athletes are in a weakened state and then you can't put them back too early. It's going to cause more damage to the head. It did actually takes, then it take less of a, hit to the head after the first uh, injury to cause more damage the second time, correct? So they don't even have to Absolutely. get hit the same the same power and they can go down. Absolutely. You can have just little micro little micro hits, you know, repetitive micro hits like in football we see, right? And right. And, uh, and that can be enough to, you know, rattle. And you don't even have to hit your head. That's one of the biggest misconceptions with concussion is that, is that you know, you, you people think you have to hit your head to get a concussion and that's completely false. Just the a quick whiplash, the whiplash motion. Yeah is enough to, to rattle the brain to, to cause a potential concussion. Yeah, because the brain's on fluid, right? So it'll go forward, back, and it'll hit the cranium. So it'll either hit the front or the back, that's, and that's when you get the damage. Absolutely. So, the, so we actually do concussion baselining, um, you know, on our, on our general patients, not even on athletes, because, you know, what happens if a patient ends up getting a motor vehicle accident? Oh, exactly. Which can happen really at, at any age, uh, at any age. Or, or someone in a vehicle that, that goes through an accident. Um, we're able to have that baseline data. And uh, it's crazy because the, the research tells us that 99% of concussions also have a whiplash component. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, you talk about a chiropractor, physiotherapist, that feeds right into, you know, our line of work of being able to, to treat the muscles, being able to, uh, to manage the concussion symptoms, being able to manage the person with their activities of daily life, which is a huge component, right. uh, as, they go to, uh, as they go towards healing, and then being able to track that along the way. And the cool thing with this system is you don't even have to be uh, the practitioner that signs off on return to play. Cool. You can simply provide that data to the medical doctor. So we even have, you know, personal trainers that are using the system and uh, doing concussion baselines, going out in the community, assessing large groups of athletes, non-athletes as well. Um, it becomes a huge marketing tool as well too, because it, these, these individuals now know about the clinician in the clinic. So a lot of times they're not only coming back for concussion uh, screening, but they're also coming back for MSK issues, right? Yeah, the system actually breaks down. So it'll score the head, the shoulders, the hips, and the knees all separately and score those at 100 and then give you an overall score, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. So it's uh, so the, that's the cool thing too is because we're actually able to pinpoint which region of the body is lacking proprioception. So yeah. we may see a low score out of 100 on the hip right. per se. So we can actually uh, we can actually incorporate that into our management of the concussion and actually get them doing proprioceptive work on the hip, which then that area of the brain, uh, you know, is stimulated and we can start to uh, we can start to go through the process of of uh, rehabbing. 
yeah. really having that. And I'm sure so, insurance companies love to have all the data, all that data separated out from the different parts of the body, and it's all objective. So you're not having that inner practitioner reliability that goes on. And absolutely, and that's why baselining is so important, right? A lot of times, yeah. um, if, you know, if we don't have baseline data, uh, we have a young athlete, let's say, that's 15, that's going through a massive growth spurt, right? Their neuromuscular system is changing. Yeah. Uh, so so rapidly. If we don't have that baseline, we have no idea what is their norm. Yeah. And you may have one. You may have one kid that, that you know their norm is an eighty-five out of a hundred score. You may have another kid where their norm is a sixty out of a hundred score. So it, it is it is imperative that we get out in the community, have a system that's portable, that's efficient, where we can go through these athletes or the general population and be able to figure out what is their baseline. Yeah. And and then that baseline has to be reestablished at least once a year, especially in the teenage population, because you know their balance is changing. Um, because their bodies are changing. Yeah, that's not like on, that. That would be on the minimal side too, correct? Once a year, you didn't even think they'd come back once every couple of months to get that rechecked, especially if they're very active and athletes. Because now we know that all sports are having a lot of head injury. Because uh, you would immediately think football and hockey, but soccer was one of the leading sports with head injuries, also with concussions. So absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Soccer is the highest has the highest rate of concussions, and uh, you know our protocol in our clinic is we do it three times a year. Yeah. So for our young athletes, we'll do it at at the you know just prior to the beginning of the season. We'll reassess it mid-season, and then we'll do an assessment at the end of the season. Yeah, that's and I think that's great, and I think that's that's where you actually can start to see too. You can see if like, hey, maybe this athlete had a trauma early on, or you can see you actually start to like pinpoint where it is. So they don't like you're talking about getting people in and pulling them out, so they're not gonna necessarily get the CTE or constantly get that. But then you also can start to track this data too and track their balance improvement over time, and you can get that trend data, right? That'd be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all about trend data, right? It's about being able to see what the trends and to get trend data. You, you, first of all, you have to have data. So it has to be data analytics. It can't be visual, right? right? It also has to be a zero to 100 scale yeah. or a scale such as that to be able to see where they fall. That's that's how you evaluate the trend is what are their scores over time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's unbelievable. It's really cool to see how the subjective symptoms that, that that patient is experiencing, whether it's whether it's nausea, uh, you know, whether it's um, photosensitivity or, or or sensitivity to to loud noises, um, you know, all these different symptoms that we we often see with concussion, how their subjective improvements in those symptoms will also pair up with their improvements in balance. Yeah, that's cool. But not always. And we have had we have had many cases where people think that they're back to normal and they feel great, but they're still 15, 20 points below what their baseline is. Yeah. So that's that's where it gets scary. That's that's where if we rely on just subjective information, um, we would be putting that that athlete at risk if they were to go back and play. They think they're cleared. But but really, uh, really, they're not clear. So we do, you know, it's important to do a bunch of different tests. The balance test is a great test, uh, but we also do cognitive testing as well. We will baseline with cognitive testing uh, and and reassessment with that. And then we like to do eye tracking. So we'll actually track the eyes in all four quadrants 
And um, it's amazing what you see in the eyes after a concussion, how the eyes will stutter, how the fatigue will set in. Sometimes you even get a head shift, a lateral head shift, because they start to fatigue and try to recruit other muscles of the eye yeah. to, to do that movement. Uh, so, so it's, it's important to, to, you know, have, have a, a bunch of different tests, but the, the, the balance test is, is seems to be the, the most, uh, the most accurate. Yeah. And so for, for the listeners really quick, the best test, basically it's going to be your single leg down on each side, and then you're going to do two feet down, uh, all eyes closed, 20 seconds. And then on the last one, you do a tandem gait with the non-dominant foot behind, Correct. Uh, tandem, tandem balance. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Sorry, so sorry. Dominant, yes, not tandem gate. So yeah, uh, we go. Um, we'll go. Correct. We go left leg, uh, right leg. We go uh, feet together, and then we go tandem with dominant foot forward. Correct. And okay. we do this on a foam, so an Airx pad. Yep. And we do this all eyes closed. And then it's also important to take a posture snapshot. Uh, it's, yeah. it, the Kinetosense system allows you to get a, 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 a three-dimensional triplanar, so in all planes, so the frontal, sagittal, transverse plane uh, snapshot of their posture. And interestingly enough, what we're finding is that after concussion, the, the frontal plane of the hips, so an imaginary line between the left and the right hip, mm -hmm. and the frontal plane between the left and the right shoulder, what we'll see is we'll go into a, a symmetric shift. Yeah. Right? Or, or, sorry, the better way to describe that would be a unilateral shift. So they'll, the, you'll see both planes shifted to the right or both shifted to the left. Right. Whereas normally we would see in a non-concussed patient either those those uh those planes completely horizontal or we would see them um we would see one plane shifted to the left the other shifted to the right right yep. the brain's able to is able to accommodate for that so uh so that's one of the things we'll also check for and because with concussion we see changes in posture yeah and you'd think that uh, after someone gets a concussion that the cool thing about the 3d posture too is that overhead view of all the joints for the transverse plane, you can actually see these little rotations and these little minute changes in their, just in their position as they stand. And after a head injury, you're gonna see these rotations that you're talking about, you can see these different things. And you're gonna be able to say like, hey, if someone's gonna go try to stand on one leg with their eyes closed, and they have that huge shift in their body, it's gonna be a lot harder already. So you can actually start to track that too with your posture analysis as they come in also, correct? Correct, absolutely. Yeah, see, that's, uh, that's something that I, whenever I was up there with you doing my internship, that was really cool because I got to watch the different concussions because, I mean, we had a lot of hockey players come through, and when they came in, they, they, had, some, they had some pretty good head injuries occasionally. I mean, you would tell me a head shift from across the room, and I could see it from the door, so... Yeah, we. I mean, we live in Canada, so that's why we see so many hockey players. <laughs> yeah, well, we <laughs> got the only sport we have. We have football for Texas, so... That's right. That's right. But no, it's uh, it, it's been just phenomenal. Uh, it's 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 not it's not easy to manage concussions. Um, you know, there there is uh, a lot of times you almost feel like you're a, you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Yeah. Uh, you know, deal. You know, these people are are very anxious, right? And and this is uh, it really affects their their you know their their daily life right uh, some of these people can't go to work some of these people can't really do do anything if it's a severe enough concussion and um you know just explaining to them that you're tracking them that we have data to track them helps to give them a sense of ease 
yeah. and really helps to bring down their levels of stress hormone, right? Cortisol. Right. And these stress hormones have been found to really restrict blood flow to the brain. So now not only do you have this area of the brain that's been bruised that that ha- that, that does not have the ability to to uh, you know get the energy substrate from from the the fluids surrounding the brain and it starts to take it from other areas of the brain but now you also have a reduction in general blood flow to the brain right because you have that because of the the stress hormones that are released right so so patients really uh they, they like to see the trend data they like to see their improvements yeah. and that gives them a sense of ease and it, it helps to really bring down their anxiety related to their concussion and that's a huge part of managing this yeah right and um you know so in our clinic we we go all the way to to uh contacting you know if it's a, if it's a um let's say it's a school-aged child We'll even go to the point of contacting the school, talking to the principal, telling them that, you know, the changes throughout the day, that this, this child may need rest if they're able to go to school even uh, throughout the day. We try to help in that regards to, uh, to help with uh, the monitoring of what their daily activities are. Um, you know, obviously trying to get them away from too much screen time, right. you know, texting. Yep. Uh, yeah, these are all these are all things that uh, can really overwhelm the brain and and uh, reduce the brain's ability to heal in, in a in a quick manner. And you know, if we don't rewire the brain properly and in due time, mm-hmm. that's when we start to see long-lasting effects. Yeah. So so the 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 old school mentality that you know all concussions are going to heal up within two weeks and you know, they just have to take it easy. Uh, and within two weeks they should be good to go. I mean, we hear this all the time. Uh, that's just simply not the case. And what we're finding is that even some of, you know, the more mild concussions, if they're not treated properly, uh, really what happens is they, some, some of them become chronic Yeah, and it becomes a chronic, it becomes a chronic issue that, you know, can take months or, or sometimes even years. Right. And, um, it comes down to managing, not treating, but managing. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, so we do, we have different tricks that we do in our clinic to help to manage that. We take people through stages. Um, we, you know, we'll do, we'll, we'll do things. We, we want people to do, you know, to go out, get fresh air, to do two 30 minute walks a day. That's important. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's sunny and bright outside and they have photosensitivity, you know, they wear glasses or they wear, uh, sunglasses. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, you know, trying to stay away from those things that, uh, that are going to, uh, uh, irritate the brain or overuse the brain like screen time right yeah and then as they start you know we chew with acupuncture stimulation we'll go to the muscles at the base of the neck obviously because we want to loosen up those muscles those, those tight erectors that 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 they get from uh from you know usually an associated whiplash injury yep. and we uh we use class 3b laser which there's research to to uh to back the use of laser for concussions and then when they're ready we start to incorporate balance and proprioceptive work yeah that's right awesome. with eye, with eye tracking so they'll they'll actually will have them stand on one leg right eyes open and have them follow their finger out to a quadrant turn the head towards that finger slowly turn the head away while fixating on that finger and then bring the finger back in front of them. And we'll get them to do that in all, in all four quadrants. And when we get to that stage, we start to see some great changes uh, in their balance and, and, and as they start to creep up back to their baseline.
I was going to ask you about what kind of rehab you do with them. And that's actually a really, really good rehab exercise to do. And I assume as they get better and better, you'd put the foam pad back underneath as well, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You always, you always want to test the system as they are ready. Right. And, um, you know, the, the really, the really interesting thing is there, there's a, there's a nerve loop that goes through between the eyes and the suboccipitals, mm-hmm. right? So the muscles at the base of the, of, of the skull. Yep. And we find with concussion that that complex gets thrown off neurologically. Yeah. So you get these tight, the, t- the erectors get tight at, you know, at the, at the base of the skull, they have trouble with, with eye tracking, um, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we find that actually going after the suboccipitals and then pairing that with, with eye tracking exercises, that helps to reset that complex. Yeah. yeah. Right? Do, you, do you adjust these upper cervical spine when you do that? It, it depends. Some cases, yes. Some cases, no. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with any kind of, depending on if there's whiplash or not, or, or depending on the history of the accident, obviously we'll, we want to get x-rays uh, and, and see. Uh, what's going on check ADIs, um, yeah. but, but the, the occipital c1 adjustments if warranted can can really help to clear things up and uh, a lot of patients um you know feel that 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 helps uh they'll also start to get rigidity in their spine from the muscles of of the thoracic spine yep. lumbar spine yep so obviously again the postural side so we'll actually look at the postural snapshot of what they were baseline and compare that to how the posture has changed. And if we have to do, you know, joint mobility work, if we have to do stability work and proprioceptive work, remember that we're using, we're, we're, we're attacking these areas with movement, which is then sending afferent input into the brain and is helping to re-energize and, and, and rewire those areas of the brain that are injured. Yeah. You're actually rehabbing the body to rehab the brain, which is really cool because you're testing the body through balance to actually test the brain. So you're doing the exact same thing that you're doing with your testing with your rehab to actually strengthen the brain, which is really cool. Absolutely. And what, what, what is balance, right? Balance yeah. is that, is that it's, it's kind of like a dynamic postural assessment, so to speak, where the body's sending that afferent information to the central nervous system the brain's then trying to process it and tr- and then sending back the efferents to to uh, try to maintain equilibrium, right? Yeah. And that's why it's such an amazing test is because when there's a brain injury, that loop, the brain is not able to is not able to react quickly to that afferent stimuli. So we get we get an altered efferent stimuli from the central nervous system or we get a delayed response and that's when we start to see sway. Yeah. Right. That's why analyzing balance is such a valuable piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And I mean, we talk a lot about concussion and things. That's obviously what you, what the big subject is right now, but, uh, I actually use this with geriatrics as well. So I had a couple older women come through and I did balance assessment on them found where the weakness was and rehab them accordingly. And I was actually able to show them their higher scores two weeks later, which was really cool. You know, that's a, that's an absolute, uh, that's a huge piece of this. And, and it's funny. We actually, we did a pilot study with, uh, I think they, we had about 25 people over the age of 65 that were part of this pilot study. Yeah. And, um, and they, it, it became just a huge hit for them. <laughs> right. So they were, they were comparing their scores, uh, they, you know, uh, they were in competition, basically. Was a competition? You know, 
you know, betting coffee, all, all this, all this <laughs> stuff. So they would get assessed every two days for their balance. And based on their scores, they were given a customized program yeah. to strengthen, you know, different parts of the body, whether it's the glutes, which was a big one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and different, yeah, different exercises in different planes. And we saw that almost all of them improved their scores dramatically. And it's so important because the research tells us that over the age of 65, if someone falls and fractures a hip, which is very common, yeah. that, that 50% of those individuals will die within one year. That's crazy. That's a crazy high number. That's a high stat. Oh, it's, it is one of the major strains that we have on our healthcare system right now. Yeah. So by, by, by using a system like Kinetisense, we're able to give an accurate score. We're able to now also engage the, the patient or the client to a whole new level. And, uh, and they want to beat their score. They want to work on their home care. They want to improve. You're motivating again, active rehab. We're driving better function. Yeah. And by driving better function, we reduce their risk of falling. I mean, talk about the power that this that this type of tool has. Well, right? Not only for concussion, but risk of fall in the geriatric population. Yeah, and you're talking, so you had told me before about uh, the real-time biofeedback, how someone can learn a movement five times faster if they can actually visualize themselves do it. And the cool thing about Kinetisense is actually gives the lines, measurements, everything that you possibly could want to see, you can see on Kinetisense. So when I was doing my rehab with her, I was putting her on that functional screen and letting her watch how she compensated. I was trying to get her to diaphragmatic breathe while she was stabilizing on one leg. And this was just her rehab that we started with. But as we, she was able to do that, she learned that so much faster than I've tried to get people to learn rehab, just a simple hip extension. And it's taken 30 minutes before. And this 68 year old lady learned how to diaphragmatic breathe on one foot in probably five minutes. That was really cool to me. Yeah, I mean, that's the power of, of biofeedback, right? Being able to learn a movement or improve biomechanics three times faster by by the having the person be able to use their visual cortex to then fire their motor cortex. Yeah. And and that's the beautiful thing about having a system that, that shows data of all three planes in real time and lights up their joints and, and they're watching the screen while they're doing their movements. I mean, we actually use this biofeedback to actually retrain balance. Yeah. It, it, uh, it's a very, very valuable tool. Some people, you know, we use it to retrain posture, uh, ergonomics, yeah. right? Um, diaphragmatic breathing, like you said, what, do you, what are we doing? We're firing, we're firing the diaphragm. And uh, the, the system is so sensitive that if someone's doing apical breathing, if someone's doing paradoxical breathing using you know, their scalenes or their, their pec minors to, to breathe, the chest yeah. breather, so to speak, right. Right? Um, you'll actually see changes. The, the numbers will change. It's, it's, it's sensitive enough to see that. You'll see tilts in the shoulders change. You'll see the A to P of their posture change. You'll even see their head carriage change yep. slightly as they're breathing. And uh, so, yeah, we, we, we love to, to use the system for biofeedback. It, it, uh, the patients can see the change. They can try to work on staying still, staying packed in a good postural position, work on their balance, yep. work on their squats, work on any type of movement, really. Yeah, and, um, the versatility cool. of the system is uh, is unmatched.
Yeah, and you're talking about engaging the diaphragm. Like, think about like the geriatric population. Core stability is a huge thing, core and glute. And when you breathe through the diaphragm, it actually activates pelvic floor. So you're going to get more of your core stabilizing. So being able to get her to do that so fast and make it recreatable was just like night and day different to get. Because, I mean, you think about having a young athlete trying to train them diaphragmatic breathing. Sometimes that can take two visits. But this lady was able to do it in five. That just blew my mind whenever I saw that. Well, it's funny, you know, the majority, and, and, and it usually happens around the age seven or eight, uh, especially in females, they go into that suck-in stomach pattern, yep. right? They go into that suck-in stomach. So they start to try to suck the stomach and pull it in, and, and that then retrains or rewires the breathing pattern to become paradoxical, right? So they'll, you know, when you assess them, when they're breathing in, instead of extend, expanding and using the diaphragm and having it drop, they'll actually be sucking their stomach in. Yeah. Which I'm... is completely the opposite. So, so, so they do have serious issues with pelvic floor stability and it propagates, you know, it just kind of builds throughout life and the body has to, has to obviously compensate. Oftentimes we have the iliopsoas muscles that will start to lock up Yep. to try to compensate and hold the core together. So we start to get tension in the hip flexors, which then calls, causes an anterior pulling and a, and, a, and a pulling down of the spine, right? Yep. Reduced hip extension. So Tightening you can see how you know, something as simple as breathing properly, how it affects athletic performance and also, also risk of injury compensation. And the other crazy thing too is that, and I, I learned this through DNS, uh, is that when we when the when the diaphragm's sitting high, uh, we have a higher risk of low back pain. Obviously, mm -hmm. so the research has told us this. But the other thing too is that when the diaphragm's sitting high, we don't we're not able to access the base of the lung, right? Mm, yeah. And we're not able to. So, but but when we when we start to activate the diaphragm, the diaphragm starts to drop when we breathe in. We now open up the base of the lungs which allows us to get so much more oxygen into our blood, in, in, into the blood. So, you know, you talk, we've, we've heard of this term in like the Olympics, the blood doping, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> which is technically, which is technically the, uh, the illegal way to, uh, the <laughs> cheater's way to try to generate more oxygen into the blood, which then increases performance. Right. This is the natural way to do that. And, and when, we, when we're not activating the diaphragm, we're actually starving ourselves of, of um, extra oxygen that, that our muscles, that our tissues need to use as fuel. Yeah, so brought up two things here. Actually, I have a author of The Oxygen Advantage coming on a couple episodes, and he's going to teach us how to do high-altitude breathing through the nose to recreate high-altitude training in any level you're at. So we're going to be able to see that with it. And he talks about diaphragm breathing all the time, so it's going to fit right in with what you're saying. But um, yeah. I kind of want to leave our listeners with a little treat here. I know you did some, uh, well, we did some movement assessment on some pretty high up athletes. I was wondering if you could see yeah. if they're, uh, talk about any of those movement patterns that you saw. Yeah, I, I think you're referring recently to our work with uh, one of the Major League Baseball teams. Exactly. The Atlanta yeah, you the know, Braves. it was... Uh, it was kind of an eye-opening experience. So we had the Atlanta Braves. Uh, they they invited us to uh, to Atlanta to work on their their, their forty-man roster, and then to Orlando to work on um, some of their AAA affiliate players. And uh, it was just unbelievable some of the some of the asymmetries that we saw. <laughs> yeah. Even, 
high performance athletes. I mean, we, the, the, the pitchers were the, were, it was crazy because <laughs> we would find that the dominant leg of the pitcher when they're doing their balance testing would score incredibly high. Obviously they're, they're loading on that leg throughout their pitch. Right. And then when they, when we would analyze their other leg, <laughs> it would be like, 30, 40 points out of 100 lower than their dominant side. If they didn't fall right? off the screen. <laughs> exactly. It was just it was just unbelievable. But their best, the and, and, and keep in mind, you know, baseball, especially pitching, is an asymmetric movement, right? Right. Um, but it's funny, the, their, the top pitcher on their team actually had symmetry mm-hmm. left to right in balance. Pretty cool, isn't it? And, and he and I was I was I was discussing this with him. He was telling me how much yoga and how much work he does because he's able to use that that non-dominant leg in the pitch. He's able to to have full control of that and use that to generate power through the sling system. Yep. So he had the he has the fastest pitch on the team, and he has he has uh, so so the greatest velocity, but he also has uh, the greatest accuracy too, according to the pitching coach. So it was an interesting thing to see. And, um, and, and it, it, it proves to me that even in, you know, athletics that are, or positions in athletics that are asymmetrical in nature, how we still have to drive for symmetry in the neuromusculoskeletal system. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's imperative for performance and for risk of injury uh, reduction. I think you hit the nail on the head talking about the sling patterns too, because you have to think that, when a pitcher is going through his motion, that counterbalance action is always going on. And if he's not stable and he's not strong in that motion or that, that opposite side of his body, it's going to throw him off and he's going to have to stabilize on the side he's trying to push power output on. So he needs to be stable on both sides bilaterally so that when he goes through this advanced motion that he's going to be able to stay stable and strong. That's probably why he's the most accurate too. Absolutely. Absolutely. He has a, uh, a very keen understanding of where he is in space and time. Yeah. So his proprioception was was out, was was uh, off the charts uh, compared to uh, some of the other pitchers, right? And we actually found it, it, when going through the data, we actually found that the MLB pitchers, so the forty-man roster pitchers, had less discrepancy in their left to right leg balance scores, eyes closed, than the AAA affiliates did. So that's the AAA cool. affiliates more asymmetry in yeah. their balance score. I mean, that shows you something right there. If, if you've got them in all the MLB pitchers and then the AAAs are having the asymmetries, I mean, maybe that's something we need to really focus on with our pitchers. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you need to have the data. You need to have the data, the multi-segmental data, multi-planar data to be able to really pick that out. These are these are discrepancies that we wouldn't be able to catch very well with the naked eye. But you can get them with the system. And think about trying to like do it with the naked eye and scoring it at 0 to 10. or how the, I think it's 0 to 10 invests. And you try to score a zero to 10, but you're doing that through the body. And if they fall within five seconds, you just score it a 10. So you don't have any data like from the head, shoulders, hips, or knees separately. So how do you rehab them? How do you take care of them? What are you going to work on with that? You know what I mean? Well, and, and the other thing too is just, you know, just falling or losing your balance. Um, you'll have people that, that, that will not fall or lose their balance. They'll be able to keep that leg up, but their, their, their head is shifting in all directions or their hands flailing around, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So they find ways to compensate to maintain a balance or to maintain their balance in their, in their lower extremities. Right. Um, this system will pick, will pick all of that sway up and actually account for it and score it appropriately. 
So who were the best uh, functional movers out of the all the baseball players? The Braves. You know, it was, it was really interesting. It was actually the bat catchers. Yeah. They had the the, the, the best uh, balance. Um, their squats were phenomenal, obviously, because they're in that, that crouched position. Right. Uh, inline lunges were phenomenal. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they, uh, they did the best in our CAMS assessment. So our CAMS assessment is the functional movement screen that, that we, that we do 12 movements. And, uh, we had three bad catchers on the 40 man roster. And I think they all had the highest scores on the team. That's so crazy. It was, it was cool. Yeah. yeah. And you, you expect them to be really good at the squat and the inline lunge. I think them being the best at balance is what surprised me the most. I mean, they sit in the squat the whole time anyway, and then to be reactive and to get out, basically making the the inline lunge or a lunge like away from the body, obviously. But when they're the best at balance, that that kind of blew my mind. I didn't expect the catchers to be best at balance. I don't know who I thought it would be, but I didn't think catcher yeah. for some reason. Well, it, it actually makes a lot of sense because a catcher is oftentimes they're they're up on their toes a little bit, right? Right. When they're in that squat position, and. Um, and then they, they're obviously having to move quickly and react. And so they have a very keen sense of proprioception and body control yep. because they're having to block the ball or they're having to catch the ball or they're having to jump out quickly, uh, jump out of that squat position to go after a ball or to jump out to, to throw to, to you know second base, third base, whatever. Um, so if you actually look at the position itself, it makes a lot of sense as to why they, they have the most symmetric and, and, and the best function. So the best neuromuscular control too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, Doc, thanks for joining us again. We went a little longer than expected, but I think that's going to be common for you and I when we do these. So <laughs> uh, I think I want to get you back on, and we're going to go through uh, the cams. I want to go through a functional movement screen, what we're looking for, what we want to do, what are some of the major things that you see in uh, everyday people and in specific sports. I think that would be good for us to go through next time. Absolutely. And we, we have with our new version coming out of Kineticense, our functional planar mapping tool, which actually uh, breaks down the findings of CAMS and gives actionables, right? Gives a posture index, a, a mobility index, a flexibility index. Um, so it, it'd be great to, to discuss some of that tool as well. Yeah. And I'm going to, I got to play with that a little bit. So the, there's also on that functional planar mapping tool has that uh, top three most dysfunctional areas of the upper body, top three mis- most dysfunctional of the lower body, if it's mobility or stability and in what plane of motion. I've never heard of any assessment being able to tell you any of that. So we're going to have, this. that'll probably be a 46-minute talk. Well, that's, yeah, it's, it, we're, <laughs> we're really excited about that. It's the first time it's ever been done and uh, has incredible applications to chiropractic, to physiotherapy, athletic training. Yeah, um, and, everything. Uh, it takes all the data of all the movements and makes it applicable, right? And that's really the key of the system, the goal of the system. And I really like it doesn't tell you how to treat it. It just tells you exactly what's going on in there. So you handle it how you want to, which is cool. That's right. All right, Doc, thanks for joining us again. We'll have you on again, okay? My pleasure. Thank you, Bo. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to Episode 5 of Kineticast. Dr. Camo talked about how he used the 3D balance assessment in practice, but didn't speak much about how his clinic has screened all of his area's minor league hockey athletes. He's not the only one to be utilizing the Kineticense in this way. There are multiple docs who take their systems out to football fields and tracks and do concussion baselines on local teams. If you want more information about Kineticense, go to Kineticense.com where you can book a free online demo. If you enjoyed this podcast, go onto your podcast app, subscribe, and leave us some feedback.
In the next episode, we have Dr. Heather Linden, who is the Director of Physical Therapy at the UFC Performance Institute, and Bobby Gaysford, the Physical Therapy Clinic Manager. They are coming on to share their rare experiences on common patterns, injuries, and dysfunctions in the fighters they work with. They also talk about their favorite treatment options for athletes and the best parts about working in the $14 million UFC Performance Institute. I'm your host, Bo Sauls, and let's keep learning about movement, performance, and rehab together. <laughs>